In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about the dark things in and around us. This episode is being released on the weekend of June 13th, 2020. That just happens to be the ninth anniversary of the No Sleep Podcast. (laughs) How about that? Nine years of sleepless tales. During this tumultuous year, it feels somewhat difficult to get into the party spirit. But nonetheless, I am most grateful to everyone who has made these past nine years so diabolically sleepless. To our wonderful team of contributors, and of course, to you, our dear listeners. Let's plan a big 10th anniversary party somewhere next year. And be sure to go to our YouTube channel where you can see the ninth anniversary video we made with almost everyone on the No Sleep team, gathering to celebrate and share our best memories and fun times together. That's at youtube.com slash the No Sleep Podcast official. So thanks for nine great years. Let's head into year 10 and brace ourselves for many more sleepless nights to come. Now... Close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we meet a scientist traversing unexpected waters, that is, religion. This scientist has developed quite a unique concept, you see. He's worked out how to insert holy texts into people's bodies as DNA. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jesse Rose, it's soon clear that demand for this service is high and business is booming. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Aaron Lillis, and Andy Cresswell. So be careful what you offer when you have such a potentially diverse clientele. You never know what some people might ask for when you're injecting religion. All living creatures have DNA. The biological language is the foundation for who we are and what makes you, you. In contrast, non-living things do not inherently contain the same coding that we are given. It is possible, though, 
To utilize digital information as a foundation of genetic architecture for the purposes of storage. Ongoing studies since 2012 suggest that the future of text storage will be entirely organic. Using this information, in 2017, I embarked on a unique business that encoded the ancient dogma of religious text into macromolecules, and I offered this product to devout customers. I began injecting religion, literally. Using a saline solution, I would transcribe digital letters of the Hebrew alphabet into a nucleotide of a corresponding DNA codon table. I then assembled everything together with amino acids and proteins to create an injectable substance, converted religious text into DNA. The process sounds much more complex than it actually is. Doing this was incredibly cost-effective and allowed for monetary viability with the aid of Vector Builder. This formula was my product that I offered to anyone who held the desire to absorb and fuse themselves with the Word of God. Any God, really. Jesus, Allah, the flying fucking spaghetti monster, I, I didn't care. The subcutaneous injection had no real effect on human physiology, except an occasional rash from an allergic reaction that would subside after a couple of days. The only real effect was a placebo. The product was meaningless. Human disparity can easily be exploited, and I sought to profit from that disparity. I offered something no one else in the world was offering. An opportunity to become physically divine. Word of my services spread rather quickly, and business was booming. The local churches, temples, synagogues, and mosques ate my product up like candy. Fusing science and religion together, people were convinced my product was recoding their genetic makeup to ensure pathway into heaven. I would charge a price for each injection. $100 for up to five passages. $750 for an entire book. And at a discount... $5,000 for the Bible or Quran in its entirety, administered weekly over a one-month period. Easy money. With orders piling in, I eventually opened a storefront office with a lab to store the materials needed, and a dedicated injection room with comfortable leather couches. I soon became so overwhelmed that I had to hire an assistant, Lauren, to help organize my appointments. She was fascinated by the business I set up, even though she knew there was no real outcome from the DNA I created. As a religious scholar still pursuing her degree, she loved the concept. The job was perfect for her. I was enjoying a lucrative business model and living comfortably for the first time in my life. All the work and effort I put into everything gave me a tremendous sense of accomplishment. Today, the office is closed. All because of a man who called himself Azazel. He set up an appointment at our headquarters in the summer of 2018. 
Before I injected anyone, I always met with them to discuss the injection and answer any lingering questions they may have had. This meeting was more of a sales pitch, really. An opportunity to eliminate doubts and push the product more. Izazel entered my office one afternoon, arriving 60 minutes early for his scheduled appointment. I immediately felt intimidated by him. He was quite tall, at least 6'5 by my estimate, and incredibly thin, practically skin and bones. Combine his weight with the droopy bags under his eyes, and it was obvious that he was extremely malnourished. I'm here for my appointment. He approached the front desk, towering over it in the process, and casting a dark shadow on Lauren. I heard his voice from my desk in the adjacent room and wheeled my chair over to observe the man. He spoke with a deep British accent, which was rather peculiar in the Midwest United States. We don't get too many foreigners here. I always considered British accents to be quite vibrant and eloquent, but this man's voice was actually flat and depressing, like a dismal whale calling its lost calf. He cocked his head to the side and looked as though he were trying to crack his neck, but no pops ever came of it. As he twisted his head, our eyes met. Instinctively, I ducked back into my office. Lauren greeted him and checked our appointment logs. May I have your name, sir? Azazel. Oh, yes, I have you down for three o'clock this afternoon. You're a bit early, but I think we can squeeze you in ahead of schedule. Lauren began typing at her computer to adjust the itinerary. Would you be able to provide me with your last name? No. Excuse me? I want to speak to him. I peeked back out from my office and saw Azazel pointing a finger in my direction while keeping his head locked on Lauren. I could tell she was frightened by this man. I'll take care of this, Lauren. I stepped out from my hiding space and approached the front desk with a forced smile on my face. How can I help you, sir? He turned towards me, reached into his coat pocket, and pulled out an envelope. This is for you. I took the thick envelope from his hands and pried open the flap to examine the contents. Inside was a wad of cash. Fifty thousand. That's a down payment. I looked back at him with astonishment. A down payment for what? He raised his arm and held out a USB flash drive. I need you to inject me with this. No questions. I took the flash drive from his hand and studied it. The device was a normal-looking drive without anything out of the ordinary immediately apparent. What's on it? I said no questions. You can translate digital text into DNA, yes? Well, yes. So translate what's on there. There's another 50,000 in it for you once you're done. Who the hell was this guy? He refused to properly identify himself, avoided questions, and somehow had money to throw around like confetti. Committing verbally only, I assured Azazel that I would get to work on the translation 
and instructed him to return in three days. My verbal confirmation was initially one of deceit, though. I had no intention of following through with this order until I inspected the contents of the flash drive. If it consisted of anything illegal, I fully intended on reporting this to authorities. When he left, I returned to my desk and immediately connected the flash drive to my laptop. A folder opened containing only one PDF file. That was it. I somewhat expected images of grotesque murder scenes or violent pornography, but it was only one measly file. I double-clicked the PDF and was greeted with a barrage of Latin letters, all aligned in a 36 by 36 grid. The next page of the document contained another grid, as did the next page and the next. Of the 42 pages, 36 pages contained various 36 by 36 grids. The last six pages contained a series of what appeared to be charts and prayers written in Latin. There were about four pages containing variations of this chant. Upon entering the first chant online, I was given this translation. O Most High Lord, my God, Father, Holy King, through your Most High Name, Agla, may you constrain and compel and turn around my heart and mine through these in my love, and may it form my will in all things and through all things. All the chants were similar, but each one was directed to a different deity. Agla, Primogenitus, Redemptor, Eli, Eloi, Eostrum, Genitor, Bon, Messias, Panton, Hos. I had never heard of any of these gods before, and searching their names online didn't provide any useful results. Lauren poked her head into my office, appearing with trepidation molding her face. What is it? I don't know, to be honest. Are you going to translate it for him? I don't see why not. The entire process is meaningless anyway. Aren't you concerned? About what? This is just a bunch of prayers to strange gods. Well, why is he offering to pay so much money for it? Why doesn't he want you asking questions? Don't know, don't care. Just another indoctrinated fool throwing his money away. Let me see the text. Perhaps I'll recognize it. She pulled up a chair and studied the text with me, mouthing the chants to herself in a low mumble. Aldaria sive soiga vocor. This is Aldaria sive soiga vocor. You recognize it? Soiga, the book that kills. Never heard of that religion before. It's Christian, actually. What? No way. It said that angels revealed this book to Adam in the Garden of Eden. What he's given you is only a portion of it, though. The entire book is a little less than 300 pages long. And this section of it, this series of grids, has never been deciphered. Some of the top mathematicians and cryptologists in the world have taken a crack at it, but no one has been fully successful. Why do they call it the book that kills? Lauren looked away from the computer finally and directly into my eyes. 
It's believed that death would fall upon anyone who was capable of deciphering the message hidden in the grids within two and a half years. The code on table I used previously needed to be adapted for each grid, but I was able to complete the translation into macromolecules after two days. During the work, I conducted further research on the Book of Soiga online. Each grid corresponded with the Zodiac constellation, a planet in our solar system, and the four natural elements. In its entirety, the book was dedicated to performing magic, including instructions and rituals on summoning demons and controlling the universe. The context was somewhat alarming, especially considering the person who provided me with this information, Azazel. It was a complete mystery to me what his motives were. Ultimately, I knew the DNA I created was harmless. Whatever he believed from this text was irrelevant. Azazel was a paying customer. Rather than being frightened of him, I found myself pitying him. Just another person wasting his life chasing false perfection because he'd been told that he's not good enough, not worthy. Reality is somehow beyond calculation for the blindness of the devout. Azazel entered my office three days after our first encounter. Lauren and I cleared both of our schedules for the day, anticipating his arrival. When he walked through the front door, I immediately noticed that he appeared even more malnourished than the first time he visited us, like his body was withering away. Is it ready? I put on my best professional smile. Yes, Mr. Uh, Azazel. Please follow me to the injection room. He took a step forward, and his legs buckled underneath his weight. In order to prevent falling, he reached out and placed his hand on the wall to steady himself. Are you alright? No questions. I gave him an assuring nod and led him into our injection room, where he plopped himself onto the leather sofa. Once his body hit the cushion, he let out an exasperated breath of air. I stood over him with the syringe in hand. Where would you like the injection? Anywhere. <laughs> I rolled up the sleeve of his sweater, revealing a pale arm. Bright veins protruded from underneath his translucent skin and throbbed lightly. I glanced at Lauren and found her filled with concern, staring back at me and mouthing the word, No. I shook her off. Relax, Azazel. You're going to feel a slight pinch. The needle pierced his skin, and I injected the DNA into him. He laid on the couch staring at the ceiling as the fluid entered his bloodstream. Despite my skepticism, a small part of me thought that maybe something significant would happen. That the DNA would have some miraculous impact and cure him of whatever ailment he had. But there was nothing. He held his hands in front of his face and cried. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. We watched him sob, exacerbating the pity I had already felt for him. 
His arms collapsed onto his chest as he inhaled deeply. He then reached into his sweatshirt and pulled out a piece of paper, extending it to me with his last breath. Is he dead? I grabbed his wrist and felt for a pulse. Yes. (gasps) Oh, was it... Was it the DNA? I shook my head, then took the paper out of his hand and unfolded it, my arms shaking in the process. On the paper was a handwritten note I read out loud to Lauren. If you are reading this, the DNA did not save me. Two and a half years ago, I successfully translated the book of Zoiga. And before I perished, I bestowed the task of molding my DNA with its words. As a last-ditch attempt to save my life, I am sorry for attempting to save my own life at the expense of yours. I don't understand. What does he mean by at the expense of yours? It took me a moment. But when I finally understood what he meant, I felt my own heart stop beating and a nervous sweat immediately form on my forehead. No, 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 no. Oh, God. In the process of transcribing the Book of Zoiga with the codon table and creating the DNA, I had translated its content into another language. Like Azazel, whose withered body lay before me on the couch, I had successfully deciphered the grids and their message. As a parent, it's hard to convince your young child that their nightmares aren't real. It's even harder when their nightmare is about you. We join a mother facing exactly this dilemma. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jennifer Winters, it's going to take some special trickery to convince the young boy that things are okay. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Graham Rowett, Addison Peacock, Jesse Cornett, Erica Sanderson, Nicole Goodnight, Nicole Doolin, and Jessica McAvoy. So try to get to the bottom of these bad dreams. Do whatever it takes to find out the cause. But in order to do so, you might have to become the other Lily. This is Lily Benjamin. Mrs. Benjamin, I'm sorry to have to do this, but I need you to come and pick up Neil. Is he sick? No. He must have had a nightmare. He woke up from his nap screaming. I can't seem to calm him down. <sighs> do I really need to come? Normally I wouldn't mind, but we're having a meeting and then we need to start inventory and get set up for the used book section. 
I really do think you need to come get him. He's crying himself sick. Fine. Tell you what, my husband's niece should be out of class by now. I'll have her come pick Neil up. Mrs. Benjamin, I really think it may be better for you to come. Whenever we ask Neil why he's crying, he keeps saying something took his mama. His mama is gone. And so the well-known tug-of-war between mom and businesswoman continued. I'm the owner of a small bookstore in the historic center of Rhodes, Mississippi. Never heard of it? You're not alone. It's a scenic little bump on the road between Memphis and Tupelo. Smack shit in the middle between where Elvis was born and where he died. The town motto is, all roads lead to roads. A total lie. We're about 15 minutes off the highway down narrow, winding by roads. Despite the rural location, we are a thriving little town. Surprising, considering that, other than some tourism revenue generated by Civil War enthusiasts, we really don't have much industry. Nevertheless, our downtown is a picture-perfect historic gem, and I'm right in the middle of it with my sweet little store. On this particular day, my small staff and I were meeting to discuss not only their inventory, but also the possibility of selling used and rare books and stocking the kind of tchotchkes the Main Street tourists bought. Feeling guilty for not feeling guilty enough, I reached my niece, Christy, on her cell. She was already heading home from the college she attended, and she agreed to go and pick up her little cousin and wait with him until I could get home. Problem solved, I thought. Though not without a brief, niggling voice in my head scolding me for not seeing about my boy myself. After a couple hours of talk and work, I headed home. Christy was snuggled up on the couch with a sleeping Neil when I arrived. Neil had just turned five and would be starting kindergarten the next fall. As he slept, his breath would hitch in his chest every few seconds. Christy held him firmly in her arms, her face pale and eyes worried as she turned them up to meet my own. Oh, Aunt Lily, he was so scared. He said that someone had taken you. He cried until he threw up, and then he didn't stop crying until he went to sleep. I sank down onto the couch next to them, a lead weight in my chest as I stroked my baby's hair. Poor little guy. That must have been one bear of a bad dream. I really have to pee. We gingerly shifted my sleeping son from Christy's arms to mine, and she tiptoe sprinted to the bathroom. As I held Neil close, a whisper of a dream from the night before slipped into the edge of my mind. A face over my face. A flowing crown of red hair. A pushing and pulling. A desperate need to hold on and push, push. I need to go on home. I have some studying to do. Okay, love. Can you hand me the remote? I sat on the couch with Neil, channel surfing with my free hand until Chuck came in the door. He knelt in front of the sofa and I quickly related what had happened. I spoke in a normal tone instead of a whisper thinking that Neil should wake up now or he'd be up all night. 
Chuck reached over and patted Neil on the cheek. Hey, little buddy boy. You ready to wake up and play with Daddy? Hey, Daddy. Hey, Snuggle Bunny. Can Mama have a kiss? No! No! Daddy, where's Mommy? Neil, baby, what's wrong? Mommy's right here. Baby, you just had a bad dream. I'm here. Where's my mommy? Bring her back. You're not her. We tried for over an hour to calm our little man down. He cried so much that he vomited again. About an hour later, he finally exhausted himself and fell asleep on my and Chuck's bed with Chuck beside him. I slipped into the room and sat down next to my husband. He reached over and took my hand. Lily, you're shaking. I just don't know what's going on. Do you think I should take Neil to the doctor? <laughs> Maybe. Now, this isn't right. He was so scared. Terrified. I felt tears threatening to form and I willed them down. I've never been a crier. I used to be, but not anymore. Crying is for children and funerals. No, no, honey. You don't even look like her. Daddy, she doesn't even look like mommy. Neely, boy. It's okay. This is your... Mommy's friend. Mommy is out of town, and, and I'm here to help out your daddy and take care of you while she's gone. Chuck looked at me, wide-eyed, then closed his eyes tightly, shaking his head. He understood my plan and disapproved. The keening had stopped. Neil was now looking between his father and me, blinking. His breathing had started to calm. Daddy? I held my breath, willing Chuck to join me in the lie. Chuck blinked a couple of times, then exhaled and smiled. Yes, buddy. This is Mommy's friend. Her name is... Lily. Like your mom's. Isn't that silly? Okay. But Mommy didn't want to go anywhere. Somebody made her go. I have to pee. Chuck took Neil to the bathroom. I sat on the bed, listening to the sounds of peeing, then a flush. My plan sucked, and I knew it. It was a horrible plan, but I was in one of those moments of parental desperation. Little kids love games. If I could make this very odd, very disturbing crisis into a game for Neil's sake, then so be it. All I knew right then was that something was scaring the shit out of my little one. Right or wrong, pretending I was Mommy's friend had seemed to make him feel a bit better. I slept in the guest room that night while Neil slept with Chuck in our bed. I had the dream. A face over mine, red hair in a halo above me, a grasping and pulling inside my head. I woke up with a heavy feeling of dread. 
It was the type of dread one feels upon realizing they've greatly underestimated a threat. The dread of a gross misunderstanding. A bit later, as I slipped into the shower, I caught a glimpse of something in the mirror. A mass of red hair. Really? Then I blinked and looked again. No red hair. Just my face with its perpetually pink cheeks and brown eyes, my own brown hair in a pixie cut. Damn it, Neil's game was getting to me. I felt a wave of anger towards my son, but quickly wiped it away with deliberate maternal contrition. Stress, worry, and now guilt. Great. Chuck got Neil to school that morning. Neil no longer seemed afraid of me, but he still didn't think I was his mother. Have a good day at school, Neil. Can you give me a hug? Mommy says that I should never have to hug anyone I don't want to hug. Ah, okay. Well, have a good day then. Goodbye, other Lily. I'm sorry, honey. It's okay. Thanks for taking him to school. My mommy has red hair. My mommy has red hair. Why would Neil say that? Why did hearing it make me feel so angry? I got to the store early, looking around with a feeling of contentment, despite the weirdness with Neil. Chuck's family had money. I hadn't married him for it, but it didn't hurt either. We had a beautiful house just a couple of blocks off of Court Street, a vacation bungalow down on the Gulf, and a cabin up near Gatlinburg. Chuck had given me my shop as a wedding present, although I felt like it was really a ruse to make me stop trying to convince him that we should move out of Rhodes. The shop had never turned a profit, nor even broken even for that matter. It was an elaborate hobby, and Chuck and I both knew it, even though we'd never admit it. As for domestic duties, I had a cleaning lady and plenty of help with Neil. Life was good. My staff had finished the inventory the night before, so I went to work trying to figure out how to rearrange the shop to accommodate the new section for old books. After a few minutes, one of my employees, Miss Annie, came in. Morning, Lily. How are you? I'm all right, Miss Annie. How are you? Tolerable. Where should I start? Uh, why don't you start moving the travel books over there? I'm trying to figure out where to put the old books. When we get any. We already have some. Look in that box over there on the counter. She pointed out a box on top of the counter that I hadn't noticed when I walked in. Probably because I was distracted by thoughts of my child and the red-headed stranger who seemed to be working her way into my imagination. I opened the box to find a wonderful little collection of old books. They were mostly works by Mississippi's favorite literati, Eudora Welty, William Faulkner. There was even a first edition of William Wright. Miss Annie, where did these come from? I don't know. Somebody left them on the counter yesterday when nobody was in the front of the store. I reckon they're a donation for the used and rare book sections. 
we only decided for sure to start carrying used and rare books yesterday. How could anyone know to bring these? I mean, they're great, but how? Honey, we're in Rhodes. You know how word travels around here. All morning, I toggled back and forth between work and worry. At lunchtime, I went to visit my Nana, as I did several times a week. Both of my parents were gone, and Nana and I were the last surviving members of my mom's side of the family. She lived in a sprawling antebellum mansion that had been converted into a nursing home. It was a private facility, and almost as posh as a resort cost a fortune, and I was eternally grateful to Chuck's family for footing the bill. The alternative would have been for Nana to live in the publicly funded nursing home, a depressing place that was, in my opinion. One step up from a hospice. Nana was asleep when I entered her room. I sat in the overstuffed armchair by the window and propped my feet up on the matching footstool. Reaching into my bag, I pulled out a small, worn book that had been in the box of rare books. I had grabbed it on the way out for no particular reason other than wanting something to read in case Nana was sleeping when I arrived, as she so often was. I gingerly opened the book, acutely aware of the brittle pages. My eyes fell on a chaotic, cursive script so ornate that it bordered on calligraphy. It was a journal of some kind, written by hand with many of the words misspelled or in the unmistakable vernacular of the old Deep South. To make a woman love you, you need a long silk string and the blood of a baby who ain't never had the colic. Ain't no need to kill the baby. What the hell? If your nose is bleeding, they say to take some scissors smeared in dirt from in front of a church door and hang them around your neck with the points up. This don't work. Do not do it. If you got hate in your heart, keep it there. Don't forgive nobody. You can go into a church at night when nobody's there and preach your curse from the preacher's pulpit. Invite the devil with blood, good pure blood, and he will come and stay. He'll help spread your hate in that there church. Say these words. This wasn't a journal. It was a book of spells and incantations. Nasty ones from the look of it. My heart jumped into an excited gallop. I was still teaching myself about rare books via the internet but I knew that something like this could be worth a buttload of money should it find the right audience. I flipped a few more pages. I've been fiddling with the Ryan Trophy to try to make the transformation steadfast for people, but it ain't took yet. Here's what I figured out so far. My heart pounded harder. I grabbed my cell out of my bag and typed Theantropy and transformation into the internet search window. The results page loaded, showing results for therianthropy transformation. Therianthropy is the mythological ability of human beings to metamorphose into other animals. Huh. 
A succubus can be talked into selling her life-stealing power. Once a person has the power, they can mold it to... Lily Bell? Hey, Nana. How's my best friend today? Midland. How's my great-grandson doing? You haven't brought him to see me in a while. I fluffed her pillow, confused. Who was she talking about? Then, Neil's face appeared in my mind. I gasped, realizing that I'd forgotten that I'd had a son for a few seconds. How could I forget him? With my next breath, the dread that I'd felt the day before hatched open in my chest and dug its claws into my mind. Gray fog filled my line of vision and I was being thrown, pushed, a mass of red hair, the only color on the gray canvas that blocked Nana from my vision. My shock was replaced by a stronger, deeper feeling. Hate. I hated whatever was attacking my mind and spirit with everything I had, and I grabbed the red hair in my mind's hands, twisting and tearing it. Creature seemed stronger this time as we wrestled, until abruptly it was over, and I was again standing there next to Nana's bed, out of breath and shaken. No. What have you done with Lily? Where's my Lily Bell? Nana, I'm here. Here, uh, let me help you. Uh, uh, give her back. In the name of Jesus, give her back. No, uh, let me, let me. Uh, Nana, calm down. Uh, Nana, no, uh, Nana. Uh, uh, <laughs> nurse! I need a nurse! Please! Within half an hour and with the help of a mild sedative, Nana was asleep again. I stayed by her side for almost an hour, then slipped out of the room. The nurses promised to call me when she woke up to let me know if she was okay. Whatever was happening to Neil was happening to my Nana. As I climbed into my car, still shaking with trickles of sweat running down my temples, my mind went back to the strange journal in my bag. I reached in and felt around until my fingers felt the rough leather on its cover. As I did, the gray fog began to fill my vision again the mass of red hair forming in its midst. I let go of the book as if it were a copperhead and the fog lifted in an instant. I wiped my hand off on the car seat, grabbed my phone, shooting off a group text to my staff. Hey, do any of y'all know who brought the box of old books to the store? Please let me know ASAP. The answer came before I had even pulled out of the parking lot. Strangely enough, the reply was from a number I didn't recognize. Jack McDaniels donated the books. Oh, great. Just fucking great. I changed my turn signal from left to right and headed to Jack McDaniels' house. Jack McDaniels lived in an old house 
built before the Civil War. It had a wraparound porch and a small freestanding canning kitchen. The house was made of wood, undoubtedly black locust, judging from its never needing any maintenance or repair. A prominently placed child-sized coffin decorated the front porch, a tribute to the family livelihood as the owners of the local funeral home. The yard was perfectly manicured with all the right trees, willows and magnolias. Instead of grass, the ground was covered with wild ginger and clover. Jack had lived there ever since he returned from a boarding school, presumably somewhere up north. There was no fanfare with his return, despite his and his father's wealth. In fact, the greater population of Rhodes only knew that he was back in town when the proprietor of the local motel-slash-whorehouse deposited a check made out to her by Jack, with a detailed description of exactly what he was paying for written on the memo line. As soon as Jack returned, his father had retired and taken a travel. People eventually stopped asking Jack about his father, and it was presumed that he had died somewhere between here and Patagonia. There was no funeral, ironic, since the McDaniels owned a fine funeral home, but then the McDaniels men had always been peculiar. Both McDaniels, the elder and the younger, were known to dress in shiny, tailored suits, sometimes using a necktie as a belt, or with a threadbare velvet cape slung over the shoulders. And although they were the owners of the McDaniels' funeral home, they rarely even showed up at the place, leaving it to a revolving series of managers and staff. Jack McDaniels was often out of town, but I knew that he was here now because he had gone for lunch at the drugstore off of Court Square yesterday, dressed in a fine suit with a necktie that featured an embroidered hypodermic needle. It was the talk of downtown. I knew that I had to see him to solve the puzzle of what was happening to my son, my family. I didn't know exactly why I needed to see Jack. I just knew that I did. I was pulled towards him like he was a magnet and I metal. At the same time, the opposite side of that magnet was pushing me away. I knew that I wasn't going to leave the meeting with any peace or relief but I also knew, indubitably, that speaking with him was vital. Jack McDaniels was a peculiar man. Jack was sitting on his porch in a fine rattan chair as I approached, as if he were expecting me. Looking for all the world like a middle-aged William Faulkner, he motioned for me to sit in its twin after I climbed the porch steps. You here to thank me for the donation to your shop? Lemonade? Yes, Mr. Jack. Thank you very much for the books. Not feeling like small talk, I pulled the journal out of my bag, recoiling at its texture and praying that the gray fog wouldn't appear. Before I could speak, Jack McDaniels reached and took the book from my hands. All roads lead to roads. A peculiar town with peculiar people who have peculiar problems. Something's happening to my boy, Mr. Jack. He doesn't recognize me. My Nana didn't recognize me today either. And? Something's after me, too. It feels like it's trying to... I don't know. Like, like it wants to push me out of myself. I can't believe I'm really saying this out loud. What does this have to do with me? 
My resolve to be polite turned to dust and I leaned forward. The brutality in my voice was a surprise to me, if not to Mr. Jack. Because, you freaking William Faulkner-looking weirdo, you planted a goddamn spellbook in my shop just as things started going to hell. <laughs> and there she is. All right, Miss Lily, no more teasing. I'll cut to Hecuba. There's a monster trying to take a life. A monster? You say that like it's nothing, like you're commenting on the weather. There's a monster trying to take a life? My life? At least, she's a monster now. She? Are you saying that this thing is, was, human, a person? Miss Lily, some monsters are monsters from the get-go, whether they know it or not. That's just how they're made. Other monsters start out just like any other people and get turned somehow. Many times it's no fault of their own, save for naivete. Other monsters, like this one here, become monsters because that's exactly what they want to be. They turn themselves into monsters by their own sheer will. But why? <laughs> means to an end, darling. It's always a means to an end. What does it want? Oh, comfort, control, satisfaction. Maybe not in that order. Maybe when she started out, she just wanted to live longer, or better. A bigger house, fewer children to tend. Say that there was a young lady, about your age, 150 or so years ago. Say she was tired of what she had. Too many kids, not enough help. A house that wasn't as handsome as she would have liked. Shoot, maybe she just wanted to find a way to live longer and a fine, healthy body. Survival. Exactly. You mentioned therianthropy. No, I didn't... You're getting there, but you're not seeing the whole picture. If you get a lung infection, something bacterial, what do you think the doctor will prescribe? Um, an antibiotic? Yes, but that's not all. An antibiotic will cure the bacteria, but you also need something for the physical discomfort, like ibuprofen. And the doctor may also tell you to drink lots of fluids, and maybe take some vitamin C. A cocktail. Look, where are you going with this analogy? Yes, a cocktail. Disease is rarely treated with only one remedy. I don't see Think how... Think of it this way. This woman found a way to make a cocktail to get what she wanted. A little life-stealing, for one. So I'm way off. Therianthropy is when a human transforms into an animal. Humans are animals, dear. But, well, it's temporary, isn't it? I mean, a werewolf changes back, right? And also... Yes? I read that people lose themselves with therianthropy. That's why a werewolf never remembers who it ate come morning. No, this is something that takes the place of a person, but it must still be itself, right? And succubus is also wrong. It has sex with men and steals their life, but it doesn't take the place of their wife. But what if our unhappy woman was able to obtain and use a specific portion of a succubus's power? Or maybe the transformation isn't for the monster herself, but about transforming the perceptions and memories of the people around her. And therein lies the need for a cocktail. Bits and pieces of magic and curses from here and there. Kind of like a taco bar. Now, the monster would need sustainability. Now, how would a creature accommodate retaining its original form if there were pictures of it floating around? Destroy them? 
No, a glamour. They're good. Two parts of the cocktail are in the shaker. Steal a life force and make people remember things that accommodate the monster. And a very powerful glamour for any physical artifacts. Um, photos, videos, pictures online, hundreds of them. Yes, ma'am. And then there's the not insignificant matter of aging. So how would she, it, achieve that? Sacrifice! The person being replaced would also serve as a blood sacrifice. Lots of power in a human sacrifice, you know. Especially someone who has a family. Lots of very valuable energy there. Can it be stopped? If the magic or, or curse or whatever isn't complete, can it be stopped? Or, I, I don't know, unravel? My dear Miss Lily, there's always a way to stop it, whatever it is. In cases like these, there's always something physical that's tied to the magic. Destroying an artifact with the monster's true face will destroy the monster. Why? For all the trouble and the magic and the curses, why is there always a way to stop it? Because, Lily, the universe is sentimental. I looked at Jack McDaniels. Really looked at him. He didn't just resemble William Faulkner. He looked exactly like him. As I stared at his face, I could have sworn that I saw it ripple, like a mask made of liquid. He smiled, and I saw that behind the perfect white teeth in the front of his mouth, his molars were mottled with green and black rot. What are you? <laughs> A helpful neighbor, Miss Lily. Now, an artifact must be found and destroyed. Oh, and don't forget your book. You'll find the essentials in there. Of course I will. You've been incredibly forthcoming. The jury's still out on helpful. Why did you tell me so much? It all feels like information that would, I don't know, need coaxing? <laughs> I broke several laws driving back home. The sitter would pick Neil up from school soon, so I needed to find what I was looking for quickly. The monster was already in the heads of Neil and Nana, so surely it would have already transformed an artifact, as Mr. Jack had called it. I tore through photo albums and videos, all of which showed my own somewhat pretty face with its brown eyes and short, dark hair. Sitting on the floor in a heap of pictures and with my wedding video playing on the computer, I suddenly knew where to look. I ran into Neil's room and threw open his toy chest, pulling out the chaotic mess of toys, books, and other items piece by piece and tossing them behind me. As the toy box emptied, I stopped short. <gasps> From underneath a well-worn book, a bright green eye on a pale face looked up at me. I reached with a trembling hand and pulled it out. It was the monster in my head. A mass of ginger hair framed a smiling, pale face. It was a picture from my own wedding day. The glamour was already working its magic. 
A few minutes later, I was kneeling on the floor of our garage, the door closed. I placed the picture of the red-headed monster on the ground and dug around in the closet until I found the bottle of oxalic acid that Chuck had purchased for some DIY project that had never gotten done. I set it down and drew the journal out of my pocket. Jack McDaniels had said that I would find what I needed inside. I opened it up to a page with only one line written in the ornate cursive. Rhodes is where demons and old gods go to feed. I dropped the book as if it were on fire. I didn't want to read more. Just pour the acid on the picture and get it over with. I grabbed the bottle. Something about the journal caught my eye, try as hard as I did not to see it. It had fallen open to a page where an image was pasted. It was an old albumin print photo, in mint condition. My hand froze on the cap of the acid. As I took in the image, I felt a total calm move through me, like a blessed wave. The face wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Maybe a bit hard, unhappy, no great beauty, but not plain. The kind of face one would enjoy seeing, but never think about after the fact. A face that, had it been in color, would have had warm, brown eyes and flushed cheeks. The beginning of crow's feet around the eyes. Long, dark hair, begging to be shorn into a pixie cut. A perfectly ordinary face. The face of a monster. Of other Lily. My face. I shift from my kneeling position to sit crisscross, looking back and forth from picture to picture. I understand. For the first time in days, I'm fully present, fully myself. I remember. I remember the smells of body odor and brimming piss pots. I remember sour breath and a barking voice coming from a bearded face as books are ripped from my hands and burned in front of me. I remember that same face rubbing against my own, grunting, and then pulling away to leave a sticky mess between my legs. I remember looking down into small faces that looked like my own and feeling nothing but frustration and regret. I remember hushed, desperate conversations in dimly lit places, wrinkled hands passing an old book into my hand in exchange for something shiny and something bloody and a trip to Rhodes to see a certain Mr. McDaniels. I remember welcoming a darkness inside me in return for an escape. I reach up to touch my face, the face on the old photo. The old woman and the boy will have to be done away with. Should be easy enough for the old woman, but the boy fall from a tree, maybe a tumble down the stairs, I'll have to put on a show. 
the heartbroken mother who has just lost her world. I stop unscrewing the bottle cap again. This is wrong. I've never lost myself when I take a life. At least, never before. In an instant, I'm here and they're gone. The transformation is never gradual. I've never felt anything tender for the husbands or the children. Just a need for comfort and control. Something's very wrong. Really? Suddenly, a flash of red hair and pale skin rushes at me and I deftly push it away. How? Lily is dead. I've claimed every single piece of her life and made it my own. Her blood feeds my body and my youth. This isn't my first rodeo by a long shot. When the other is gone, it's gone. The flesh, the life, is mine alone. Jack McDaniel's words echo in my head. Sometimes people get turned. Sometimes they turn themselves into monsters by their own sheer will. Maybe sometimes it's a little of both. I'll give you one thing, Lily, you clever little thing. You fought like a demon. I'm holding the real Lily at bay with one corner of my mind as I open the acid. Jack McDaniels, that son of a bitch. Must have had a ball toying with me. Feasting on my confusion. I hold the bottle over the pale face with its red hair and pour. Nothing. I neglected to tear out the layer of safety foil that seals the mouth of the bottle. I feel the real Lily pushing. She's a dervish in my mind, moving constantly, looking for an opening, growing stronger. It's the strength of a mother who wants to be with her family to protect them. As I push back, I realize with a start that I'm very, very tired. So tired. Lily and other Lily. Could we both be here? I suppose that I could let her in, let the boy live. She would certainly try to take control, push me out. Or perhaps... She'd give up the fight if I let her back in. If I agreed to be an observer. Could we rework the glamour so that the child would see her face? Would it be so bad to let her in? Would I be able to rest? Stupid! I tear the foil from the mouth of the bottle. I feel the burning need for survival deep in my chest. A hard, dark lump of coal. My eyes shift from picture to picture. Back and forth. Back and forth. Would it be so bad not to be alone in my head? Jack McDaniels is right. Damn him. The universe is sentimental.
Some people feel distinctly average. And if you're one of these people, it's natural to crave some fulfillment. That's the case with Tim, who finds an ad offering to provide just that. But in this tale, shared with us by author Carter Milford, when Tim buys into the promise of the product on sale, he's not prepared for what comes next. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Alexis Bristow, and Ellie Hirschman. So who knows what you're going to get? It might be snake oil or it might be something more sinister. But either way, be skeptical of the claim that she sold happiness in glass jars. The poster read, Happiness sold in glass jars. (laughs) Call today. And underneath the text was a phone number. I was walking home from a long, exhausting day of work when I caught a glimpse of the paper stapled on an old telephone pole. I took a picture of it, thinking it was amusing. I was going to show my wife once I got to our apartment, but then I got caught up with chores and forgot about it. Dinner, dishes, laundry, packing a snack for our daughter, putting her to bed, then putting her toys away that she'd left all over the living room. Every night, it was the exact same routine. The next day, I awoke, sleeping back-to-back with my wife. I always had to get up earlier than she did for my job, so I quietly got ready for the day and headed out the door. At work, I was updating the company's latest expense report. Hooray! Most days were similar to this one. They were basically paying me to stare at a computer for nine hours a day and put a couple of numbers into a spreadsheet. I finished my work very quickly, So I decided to head out of the office early. It also helped that it was Friday, and a lot of people leave early at the end of the week. (sighs) On my walk back, I was thinking about what my life had become. I did this often. I had always dreamt of traveling when I was younger. I wanted to drive across the country or solo backpack across Europe. And then I met Kelsey. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I loved Kelsey. I mean, I I still do. We just don't... We don't have that spark anymore. When you meet someone and you get in a relationship, whether it's meant to be or not, some of your personal life plans have to be put on hold. And then that relationship turns to marriage, and then you have a baby, and then you have to enroll your daughter in preschool, and then you have to get a better-paying job and work more hours, and blah, blah, blah. Look, I'm not trying to throw a pity party for myself. I'm just saying I wasn't exactly content with where I was in my life. I wouldn't have referred to myself as a a happy person. As I took the same route home that I did every day to work and back, I walked by that same poster I had passed the day before. I don't know why. I really don't. But I decided to call the number. I figured it it would be some kind of joke. Maybe someone picks up and just says, I love you, on the other end, and hangs up. Or maybe it's aligned to a sex worker. I had no idea what to expect. I called. It only rang once before someone picked up. Hello? Uh, hi. Um, I'm calling about your poster. Your ad? Oh, awesome. When do you want to pick it up? Pick what up? The jar. 
I realized then that I had left work early without telling Kelsey, so I could just go pick it up now and she'd be none the wiser. Uh, what exactly is it that you're selling? Well, I just told you. It's happiness in a glass jar. Like the poster said, happiness keeps best in glass jars. They're more durable than, say, a plastic bag. Um, okay. Uh, should we meet somewhere? For sure. I don't want you to end up being a creep or something, so let's go to a public place. The public place we decided on was a Starbucks parking lot a little over a mile from me. Now, I didn't really think I was going to be buying a jar of happiness or whatever. I was like 99% sure she was going to try and sell me drugs. Maybe heroin would be in the jar. I remember thinking, oh no, happiness is probably a nickname for some street drug and I'm going to a drug deal. What if she's a cop? Am I going to be arrested? But... Something inside me told me to keep walking, and so I did. I stood outside and texted her. I'm here. Cool. Be there in a sec. What are you driving? Silver Camry. As her final text came through, I saw her pull in. She took a spot not too far from where I stood. I could see that there was no one else in the car, which put my kidnapping fear to rest. She opened her door and stood on the pavement, looking around until her eyes met mine. I gave her a little nod of acknowledgement. She simply responded by waving her hand, gesturing for me to come over to her car. So, I did. She was young, maybe mid-twenties, with curly golden hair. Her skin was pale and contrasted with the all-black outfit she was wearing. I thought it looked as if, uh, like, Glinda the Good Witch from The Wizard of Oz had put on the Wicked Witch's clothes. Nice day out. Oh, uh, (laughs) yeah, it is. Hadn't really paid attention to it. You were the one that called about the jar, right? Yeah, that was me. Cool. Well, here you go. She handed me a very small glass mason jar. Couldn't have been more than two inches tall. Inside of it was a light. Not a light bulb, just light. It was like someone bottled up sunshine. It glowed even in the mid-afternoon daylight. It looked like... like... Like a tiny sun or a tiny universe existed in this little crystal-walled home. I was admiring it with no attempt to hide the awe on my face. Pretty rad, isn't it? What? What is it? You've asked that like three different times, I think. My answer is still the same. It is happiness. Happiness in a glass jar. What do I do with it? Keep it. If you have any problems, shoot me a text. She started to get into her car. Wait, I I thought you were selling this. How much is it? Don't worry, man. You'll pay. She closed her door and I stepped out of her way as she backed up and then drove off. What the hell had just happened? What was I holding? I looked down at the jar again. Its radiance was simply mesmerizing. I put it in my pocket and I could see its glow slightly through my pants. I began to walk home. What was just a nice sunny day quickly changed into a rainy one, with clouds wrapping the sky. It was not forecasted that it would rain, or else I would have ridden the bus or the subway to work that day. I jogged home trying not to get too drenched. I finally found shelter once I made it to my apartment building. I walked up to my door and found... uh, My key wasn't on my ring anymore. Shit. I can't believe I lost it again. Hey, babe, it's me. I don't know what happened to my key. 
When the door opened, I was greeted by a large, heavy-set man with greasy hair and an unkempt goatee. Oh, uh, I'm at the wrong place. My bad, sorry. Have a good one. The man let out a chuckle as he closed the door. Apartment number 33. I know that was my apartment. I know it was. I'd been in apartment 33 for five years now. But that was not my apartment. From what I could see inside, all the furniture was different. It was painted a different color. It was all wrong. I felt like I'd hit my head and was drugged. In that moment, nothing made sense. I pulled out my phone to call Kelsey so she could calm me down and tell me I just, I got confused for a second. But her contact wasn't in my phone. In fact, nothing was in my phone. I had no messages with her, no, no previous calls, no, no pictures. It was like my phone was reset to its factory settings. Did that girl somehow switch my phone out when I wasn't looking? I would have just dialed Kelsey's number manually, but couldn't, I couldn't quite remember it. I had known it by heart before, but not anymore. I needed to get back to the office. I had all my contacts backed up on my work computer. Since it was raining, I hopped on the bus, which had a stop right in front of my apartment complex. I rode downtown toward my office, the whole time staring at my wet shoes, wondering what the hell was going on. We have a key card access to our building, so only authorized personnel can get inside. I always keep my access card in my wallet. Always. Surprise, surprise, it wasn't there. I buzzed into the speaker we had for guests with appointments or employees as a backup in case anyone forgot or lost their card. Hey, this is Tim. I must have lost my card. My employee number is... Um... I stopped as I drew a blank. Tim, you got cut out. What's your employee number? Uh, I... I can't remember. I... That's fine. Just tell me your full name and department. Uh, uh, finance. I'm in finance. My full name is Tim Brooks. One sec. About 30 seconds later, the man spoke to me again. We don't have a Tim Brooks working in this building. Did you have an appointment with someone? I backed up in surprise, almost tripping on my own feet. I had just been in that office an hour or two ago. What was happening to me? I felt like I was getting Alzheimer's, but, but going through every stage in one day. I stared at my hands, unsure if I was in the right body. I felt like the world around me was disintegrating. I wasn't in control. I was, I was merely sitting inside someone else's head, watching the world through their eyes. Just then I got a text. I recognized the number immediately. It was that girl, the one who gave me the jar. I had forgotten all about it until I saw her text. Hey, how's it going? I looked at my phone, dumbfounded. It made me angry. She was so nonchalant about this. She knew what was going on. She had done this somehow. What the hell did you do to me? The worst is yet to come. I was astronomically close to just chucking my phone as far as I could in frustration. I took the jar out of my pocket. It looked unchanged, still glowing just as bright. What the fuck did you do? I was yelling at the jar, then I figured I'd probably look like a lunatic. As I stared at its glistening glass, I, I realized something. I, I, I didn't know what my wife's face looked like anymore. 
I knew her name. Well, uh, I knew it started with a, a, a K or maybe a C. But I couldn't picture her in my mind. I knew I had a wife. I knew I did. Yes, because I had a daughter. I had a wife and a daughter. I just... Mm, I couldn't remember their faces then, or, or their names, or their birthdays, or any memories I had with them. I knew they existed. They, they did exist. I, I had just seen them this morning, right? I couldn't remember how she looked or, or what she smelled like. What was our first date? We had a wedding, right? What about our first kiss? Or my daughter? Or was it my son? Maybe I didn't even have a kid, uh, but my wife or my girlfriend, she was real. I, I knew she was. <sighs> the thought was tearing me apart. I, I couldn't see her in my head. I, I, I couldn't recall a single fact about her. I was standing outside that same building, but I was unsure why. Did, did I work there? I must work somewhere. The rain was accompanied by a chilly wind now. It was whipping at my face, making my nose and cheeks sting. I, I wanted to go home. I, I wanted to be with, with her. I, I wanted to be warm. I wanted to go into a shitty office job that kept a roof over my head. I wanted it all. I was soaking wet. I was miserable. I couldn't remember... Mm, I couldn't remember my parents or my childhood. Did I even have any friends? Why was I in the rain? I looked down at my hand. I was still clutching the jar. The only memory of my entire life I could concretely remember was that girl giving it to me, telling me it was, it was happiness. It did not bring happiness. It brought pain. It brought suffering. I was more miserable in that moment than I'd ever been. My phone buzzed. I had a new message. Break the jar, Tim. I looked at my other hand. With the setting sun and the rainy sky, I swear that jar glowed brighter than any streetlight near me. I didn't break it because I was following her instruction. I broke it. I broke it because I was angry. I broke it because I was upset. I needed a release. I raised my arm above my head and brought it down with one swift motion, shattering the jar on the concrete beneath my feet. That dark, chilly air accompanying the rain spread away like it was like it was the shockwave of a bomb going off, and I was at the epicenter. I saw the warm yellow light from inside the jar spread rapidly across the ground and ascend into the sky. It was as if I was watching the beginnings of the universe being created, like God had just snapped his fingers and said, Let there be light. I was engulfed in it. I can no longer see street or rain or anything dark. I felt like I was plummeting into a star going faster than the speed of light. I felt like I was sitting in front of a fire on a cold winter's night, but that warmth was covering every inch of my body. And then I blinked. Immediately, I could feel the sheets beneath me and my back barely touching my wife's. I was staring out the window. The morning light drenched through the glass and gleamed on my face. I stood from bed and grabbed my phone. It was Friday morning. I had one text. Let me know if you ever need another jar. <laughs> I called in sick to work. 
I snuck into my daughter's room and greeted her with a kiss and told her she didn't have to go to preschool today. We were going to have a family day. She smiled and stretched out her arms with a yawn before curling up and falling back asleep. I climbed back into bed and squeezed my wife tightly. I didn't let go for hours. Our daughter came into our room and woke us up eventually, jumping on the bed and shouting for us to get up. Yesterday, I may have found that annoying. Yesterday, I may have found a lot of things annoying, or monotonous, or dull. But not today. Today, I pulled her under the covers in between me and Kelsey. Today was going to be a good day. Today, I was happy. Noisy neighbors. Has there ever been a more pestilent blight on society? Banging and thumping and sawing and cavorting at all hours of the day and night. You ask yourself, what are they doing next door? Why is she smashing around downstairs? What's he building in there? But in this tale, shared with us by author Liselle Jones, our hero Rich finds a solution in the form of the best earbuds on the market, and then buys a knockoff pair from eBay. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Graham Rowett. So don't buy cheap off-brand products. We know that ends badly. Get yourself a genuine, bona fide pair of earworms. Some people claim to have a neighbor from hell, but I doubt many have watched their neighbor being hauled into hell. That's not an experience I ever want to repeat. The first place I lived in after graduating was a real dump, a tiny room in a basement with damp-stained walls and an oppressively low ceiling, basically an overpriced box of claustrophobia. At least it was just about affordable and close to the temporary job I'd settled for at the fulfillment warehouse of a mail-order company. And it was better than the alternative of moving back in with my folks. I couldn't bear to listen to their constant nagging that I should get a job worthy of my qualifications. Yeah, like it's that easy. The worst thing about the apartment, though, was the complete lack of soundproofing. The floors were so cheap and thin that you could hear your neighbor go to the bathroom. And I mean, you could literally hear them go to the bathroom. There were no other apartments on the basement level, but the neighbor on the floor above me more than made up for that. Marco was a total asshole. He worked early shifts at a Burger King drive-thru, which meant that he was already home before I got in and woke me up when he left for work. It felt like he was always around and did everything he did very loudly. He was seriously into weightlifting and spent at least a couple hours training every night. I soon got sick of his repetitive grunting, his strained breathing. My ceiling shook when he dropped the weights at the end of each set with a boastful yell. 
Yeah, yeah. It didn't get any better when he'd relax afterwards either. It sounded like he'd never moved on from the worst kind of 90s rap metal, playing the same shitty album over and over again at an unbearable volume. He also liked his drinking, and I could count the number of beer cans he popped open. The booze just made him louder. I tried talking to Marco about the noise issue not long after I moved in. It was an awkward exchange, to say the least. You got a problem with me training? He'd shifted his bulky frame a few inches closer to me. I'm sick of getting told what to do all day at my work. I'm not having that shit here. No, it's not you. It's just, you know, the floor is pretty thin, and you don't have to make much noise for it to be audible in my apartment. Audio bull. He sneered, his greasy ponytail whipping his neck as he shook his head with disgust. College boy, eh? You think he can come here and tell other people how to live their lives before you move on to some fancy apartment when you get tired of slumming it? Is that it? I wish. I instantly regretted speaking. His meaty hands had slapped the doorframe, spattering drops of lukewarm sweat on my face. Let me tell you, I'm sick of people telling me what to do. You got that? So, yeah. I quickly realized I wouldn't get anywhere by trying to reason with Marco. In fact, I think he started to get even louder after our neighborly chat. And I got even more sensitive to sounds. I've never been someone who's able to fall asleep to music, and while drinking sometimes helps me fall asleep, I'd always wake up an hour later and then be awake for the rest of the night. Night after night, I tried different solutions. Squeezing, even tying pillows around my head. Different brands of earplugs from the pharmacy, cell phone apps that promised to induce sleep with soothing nature sounds or white noise. None of them worked. Even more frustrating than the sounds invading from upstairs was the endless internal critic in my head, grousing about the indignity of having to try to manage my sleep around that meathead's routine. I just couldn't stop telling myself that I should be able to control the situation better, then hearing myself admit that I couldn't. I'd signed a six-month lease and was virtually trapped at the apartment. I slept less and less, walking around all day feeling crushed. My job at the warehouse was draining enough at the best of times. A human drone rushing from shelf to shelf, commanded to pick up some random items by the relentless robotic voice in my headset. Doing it in my zombified state was getting almost unbearable, but I couldn't give up. I needed the money, and more importantly, I needed to avoid gaps in my resume. It'd hopefully pay off when I'd get around to applying for positions in the marketing arena again. But I couldn't do that yet. I needed to sort my head out first. So I started to investigate different solutions to the sound problem. The building owner wasn't interested in soundproofing the crappy ceiling, and doing it myself wasn't feasible, so I looked into sleeping pills. To be honest, they sounded like the last thing I needed. So many horror stories about the adverse effects. I knew I couldn't cope with that. At one point, I thought I'd found the holy grail in the form of sound-canceling headphones, but, but I was shattered to discover that they were way out of my price range. And the reviews generally weren't great either. Then I moved on to high-end earplugs. Of course, there were specialist review websites and forums dedicated to discussing these products. Pages and pages debating and detailing the finer points of foam, silicone or wax materials, custom-formed or moldable shapes, reusable versus disposable models, and so on. And on. And on. I spent hours researching, my mind blazing with the notion that I might have finally found a solution to my life's greatest problem. 
The consensus among the earplug intelligentsia was that a brand called Earworms was way ahead of the rest. They apparently retailed at a higher than average price, but were considered to definitely be worth the extra cost. I eagerly tapped in the company's website address. They obviously saw themselves as the Apple of the earplug universe. Their minimalist homepage was filled with the Earworms logo on a plain black background, the Z at the end of the name stylized to look like an ear. There wasn't much technical detail about the products, mainly vague comments about their unique patented design and world-beating performance, but the testimonials page overflowed with gushing reviews about how Earworms had transformed customers' nights. Quite a few talked about solving long-running disputes with problem neighbors. I was sold and excitedly clicked on the online shop section. It looked like there was only one model of earworms, which made things simple. The buy page included the first complete image of the earplugs I'd seen. I was a little disappointed, if not grossed out to be honest. They kind of looked like fat little maggots, shiny purple in color with white tips. Some designer probably got paid a shitload to come up with that, but they looked like weird miniature sex toys to me. Whatever. If they worked as well as they claimed, I couldn't care less what they looked like. I selected a quantity of one pair and clicked the buy button. My heart bombed. You have got to be shitting me. 750 fucking dollars? Not including packing and postage? Non-refundable due to hygiene reasons? Fuck off. Almost as if to celebrate the fact that my life had just been shredded, Marco switched on his sound system upstairs. My head plummeted onto the table. I rolled my forehead over the surface a few times before sitting up and taking a gulp of vodka. Come on, Rich. Hold it together. This won't beat you. I searched to see whether I could buy earworms from somewhere other than the official website. It didn't look like it, the audacious bastards. In desperation, I tried eBay, in case somebody was selling a second-hand pair. Success! I middle-fingered at the ceiling. Cheap imported earworms, read the listing's headline. The products obviously weren't official. The name ended with an S rather than a Z, and the color scheme was alternating black and orange rings instead of glossy purple. There was no detailed description either, probably intended to avoid trademark and patent infringement or something. I guessed but they looked pretty identical to the originals in terms of their maggoty shape. And only $25. Okay, $25 each, who would want only one earplug, but still, not bad. I'd had success with knockoff tech products from eBay in the past. I knew from my studies how much extra a brand name added to the cost of a basic product, and so I was hopeful. The seller was called SC Cheap Imports and had a 100% positive feedback. They accepted returns, and only had three of the earworms copies left in stock. I took a chance and ordered two. A few days later, there was a package waiting in my mailbox when I got home from the warehouse. I tore it open in my apartment and dug around in the shreds of paper packaging, trying to ignore Marco's strenuous workout upstairs. I drew out a small plastic bag containing two earplugs. I felt a huge sense of relief. Maybe I'd get some real sleep tonight at last. I jumped on my couch, ripped open the bag, and reached inside. The earplugs felt tacky and rubbery, slightly warmer than I'd expected. Could these really be the answer to my problems? I rolled them between my thumbs and forefingers. I felt a vague sense of repulsion and hesitated. Oh yeah, bitch! 
Okay, let's do this. There were no instructions, so I squeezed one of the earworms and gently pushed it into my right ear. I did the same with the other one and paused. I felt them expand to fit the inside of my ears. A sensation familiar from the ineffective earplugs I'd used in the past. The music from Marco's apartment started to fade slightly, but only slightly. I punched the arm on the couch in frustration. Then it felt like both of the earworms twitched. They began to fatten and ripple, their tips curled and stretched a bit deeper into my ear canal. The movement felt weird and I reached to take them out, but then I noticed the noise was gone. I stopped. The noise, totally gone. I almost cried, I really did. Finally something that shut that moron out of my life. I flung my head back onto the couch and luxuriated in the silence. And then I noticed something else. Not only had the sounds from the apartment gone, but for the first time for as long as I could remember, my own internal nagging was fading, stopping. No more swearing at Marco. No more crucifying myself about getting my life together. Bliss. A smile stretched across my face. I planned to make myself something tasty to eat and have an early night. Before I stood up, I started to hear a faint sound inside my head. It wasn't intrusive and was quite relaxing, really. Kind of like holding a seashell to my ear, with some distant clicking sounds mixed in there, too. I sat back and listened to the ululating, ticking sounds. Yeah, pretty relaxing. Next thing I knew, I woke up on the couch. It was daylight outside. I looked at my wristwatch, just past 6 a.m. I normally left for work at 6.30, so it was pretty good timing. And I felt pretty good, too. My head hadn't been this clear for weeks. I removed the earbuds and sprang up to go to work. The next few weeks were great. Pretty fantastic, really. The earworms continued to reliably put me to sleep every evening. I started to look forward to going home to my apartment for the first time since I'd moved in. Even work was getting more tolerable. The voice in the headset bothered me less. It sounded more like murmuring in the distance than never-ending attention-demanding commandments. I quite happily drifted through the days. The only slight downer was the occasional weird dream. Normally I'd fall asleep a few seconds after putting my earworms in, and remain totally out until morning. Routinely waking up just after six, feeling great. However, about every second or third night I'd have a batch of vivid dreams. Not exactly nightmares, but lurid visions accompanied by a hyper-real soundtrack. One of the most common ones was kind of like an out-of-body experience. I'd see myself from above, lying in my apartment, the space around me filled by some sort of thick, clear, pulsating fluid. It felt comfortable, though, safe and womb-like. Muffled heartbeat sounds throbbed in and out, gently vibrating my whole body. Other times it was like I was zooming farther out, floating up through my ceiling ending up looking down into Marco's apartment as if from miles above, but somehow still close enough to see the pores on his face, the veins throbbing under his patchy skin. It sounded as if he was in pain, pleading, his voice a weird looping growl that stretched up through space towards me, building louder and louder, reaching a crescendo with a huge echoing grunt. I put it all to some odd psychological relief thing. One day I got back later than usual from work. I'd been out for a drink with a few other graduates who worked at the warehouse, commiserating with each other about the usual problems of the job market and student debt. 
Marco was standing at the stairwell, clutching a can of Bud. His eyes were bloodshot and he seemed subdued. Kind of pale and less pumped up. Hey dude, you really need to stop whatever the hell it is you're doing at night. I need to get up for work early, you know that? You need to let me sleep. I considered commenting on the ironic nature of his request, but decided against it. He still looked tense and dangerous, even if less self-assured than usual. I don't know what you mean. I sleep really well these nights. He glared at me and I held his gaze for a moment. He looked like he was about to say something, but just took a swig from his beer and turned towards his apartment. I didn't see him again for a while, and things basically stayed the way they had been recently. I still had occasional weird dreams, including new ones where it felt like I was trying to push up through the viscous fluid that filled my apartment, straining towards something unseen, something that was the source of the beating sound that I could also sense was tunneling down towards me. It also sounded as if Marco was training less these days, and wasn't playing those same fucking songs as often. I could still hear him, though, pacing around and muttering to himself, occasionally hitting a table or something. Not my problem. The earworms still worked great. I suspected I'd find it difficult to sleep without them. Then, one evening I came home to find Marco slumped out in the hallway, with a couple of empty, crushed beer cans discarded at his feet. He was wearing a sweaty old vest, and I could see red splotches on his neck, shoulders, and arms. I nodded in his direction, hoping that would be all the interaction that was needed. He started to pull himself up from the floor shakily. Why the hell won't you stop? I started to edge past him toward the stairs to the basement. He stepped towards me. I said, why the hell won't you ever stop? Every fucking night! All night! Marco, I really don't know what you're talking about. He stumbled closer and I placed my hand on his chest. To my surprise, he stepped back. I'm gonna do something about it. Someone must be able to do something to help. It needs to stop. I need to sleep. I watched him shuffle to his apartment. Why doesn't he me? Why can't he just that? Part of me thought he'd been hitting the booze too hard, or overdosing on cheap steroids. Possibly both. But part of me was also curious. He seemed pretty certain that I was doing something noisy in the night, and I'd prefer to have some sort of proof in case he made a complaint to the building owner. I decided to download a security camera app for my cell phone. I set it up so that if it detected any prolonged motion or loud sound, then it would record a time and date stamped video clip. I felt it had helped soothe my doubts. I mean, I hadn't been having those weird dreams. I guess there was some chance that I could be sleepwalking or something. I propped up my phone in a corner of the apartment so that it should catch pretty much everything that went on in this end of the tiny space. I got into bed, slipped in my earworms, and felt that familiar snuggling deep in my ears. They silenced my worries, and I let their soft shushing and tapping quickly lull me to sleep. The next day was Sunday, and after a breakfast of cheap oatmeal, I decided to have a look at whether the security camera app had recorded anything. What the hell? The app had recorded over nine hours of footage. I sat down, my finger trembling as it pressed the playback button. The video first showed me lying on my back in bed, arms crossed over my chest like a corpse, twitching. My fingers began to move unbelievably fast. They fluttered over my torso and then started tapping my chest and neck. That was before they began to pluck at my own skin, pulling and stretching it upwards, stretching it unnaturally thin and far out. I cringed and stroked my stomach. 
This couldn't be real. I'd have to remember doing that, and I'd be covered in marks. Sounds began to emerge from my mouth in the footage. Weird, inhuman sounds. Kind of insect-like clicking interspersed with high-pitched squeals. The worst thing was that it sounded familiar. As if I'd constantly been hearing that sound in the back of my mind for weeks. A quiet backdrop that washed out every thought. I could hardly bear to continue watching, but I couldn't look away. I saw my body begin to twist violently, wrapping the sheet tight around itself. All the while, those horrible chants and sounds were spilling out of my mouth. I threw down the phone. I had no idea what to do next. I looked over to the half-empty vodka bottle on the table. But I didn't want to go there. Didn't want to turn out like Marco. If it was drink that was responsible for his weird behavior, it looked like it might not be. Why was I acting like that all night? But deep down, I'd had doubts all along. The earworm. I picked up my phone and navigated to the eBay listing again. It was the same as last time. One photo of the earworm's knockoff. Barely any text, only a remaining quantity of one. I clicked on the seller's details. Not much to go on there either. The usual cut and paste positive feedbacks given and received. A mailbox address somewhere in South Carolina. However, the strange thing was the other items they sold. I'd expected to see electronics or drugstore products, but their stock consisted of weird stuff. Obscure herbal remedies. Charms covered in occult-looking symbols. A couple of creepy statuettes of some snake-dragon creature. There were no detailed descriptions for any of the listings, just single rough photos and basic headings. Cheap imported powdered scarab beetle. Cheap imported arindic pendants. Cheap imported altar effigies. What the hell had I bought? Thoughts crowded into my head, telling myself how stupid I'd been to buy these things without checking properly. Why'd I kept using them after feeling them move like they were alive? Marco paced and muttered in his apartment above. I couldn't stand it. I covered my ears, but still heard all the sounds. All my thoughts, all constantly underpinned by these non-stop clicking and squealing sounds. I wanted to bury my head in the walls, in the floor. I tried to distract myself with TV and the internet, but there was no escape. Feeling exhausted, I threw myself into bed. It offered no sanctuary. Cheap imported earworms. How could I be so stupid? How did I get so desperate? It sounded as if Marco had decided to start exercising upstairs. I so wanted it to be quiet. I just wanted it all to stop. I stared at the earworms on my bedside table. I tried to resist. I really did, but I found myself reaching for them. I held them in my fingers on either side of my head. Just one more night. I'll work something out tomorrow. If I can get a decent night's sleep, I'll be able to think clearly. The earworm slithered from my fingertips into my ears, blocking out everything, and I quickly blacked out. I was woken by something falling on my face. I opened my eyes, let them adjust to the dark. There was a crack in the ceiling above my bed. The surface shook and flakes of plaster dropped onto my face. I tried to move but couldn't. I was enshrouded in my sheet. It was as if I'd somehow managed to fasten it to the bed while asleep, so that I couldn't even roll sideways out of the way. The earworms were still in my ears, so I couldn't hear anything. 
but I could see the cracks growing. Then I realized that I was chanting that insect-like sound. I couldn't stop. Helplessly, I watched the cracks spread outward before a slab of the ceiling snapped loose and collapsed onto me. A hand holding a dumbbell plunged through the hole. The weight swung toward my face but didn't reach. Marco pulled back and started to bash the dumbbell around the edges of the hole to enlarge it. Still chanting, I struggled with the sheet. I managed to get my right arm free, but my body still couldn't move away. I knew I had to take out the earworms. Dust and fragments of the ceiling rained down on me as Marco forced his shoulder through the hole. I pulled back as mad eyes glared at me, silent words spitting from his mouth. He clawed towards my face, but still wasn't close enough. His arm disappeared back up into the hole. My fingers grabbed the earworm on my right ear and I started to pull at it. If I was able to stop chanting, I would have screamed. The earworm bit the inside of my ear, needle-like points digging into the tissue of my eardrum. In agony, I kept pulling, stretching the wriggling, struggling thing. Something flashed in the hole above me. Was that a blade? With a desperate pull, I tore the earworm from my ear. It squealed before it snapped, coating the inside of my ear with a vile, hot goo. The sounds of the outside world started to mix back in with my chanting. I still hadn't stopped that. I told you to fucking shut up! I warned you! Marco slammed his body on the floor and rammed his arm through the hole again. A knife stabbed towards me, barely inches from my face. Marco kept swiping and slashing. The blade kept getting closer and closer. I stretched my free arm over to my left ear, fumbling for the remaining earworm. My fingertips ran over its gummy surface a couple of times before getting a grip. I started to pull and felt that agonizing biting again. Shards of wood and plaster fell onto my face. As I spat out dust, I saw Marco tearing at the hole. It'd soon be big enough for him to fit his body through. My fingers slipped and lost hold of the earworm. Why don't you shut up? Marco dived through the hole, the upper half of his body dangling down into my apartment. I regained hold of the earworm and yanked hard. It stretched longer and longer, impossibly far from my head. I could barely pull it any further. Marco drew back his arm, aiming the knife at my face. I tugged desperately at the earworm, but it had dug into my ear too deeply. Suddenly Marco's eyes locked onto mine. He stopped struggling. A weird look of serenity glazed over his face and he began to join in the chanting with me. I froze in confusion and horror. Marco calmly started to cut at his own face, slicing deep vertical lines in his cheeks and lips. Blood and fragments of wet, warm flesh showered down on me. I started yanking the earworm again. Marco closed his bloodshot eyes and purposely moved the knife to the side of his head. He poised it, ready to stab his skull through his ear as we both ridiculously continued to chant the click. I wrapped the stretched earworm tight around my finger. I felt its body tighten, its bite loosen. Before I gave it a final, forceful tug, I paused. I let Marco plunge the knife into his head. His body slumped, and then I tore out the earworm. We were both silent again. I threw the shriveled worm across the room, and the dead weight of Marco fell onto me. I obviously 
had to move out of that apartment. The owner waived the remaining rent due, and I decided to move back in with my parents and give job seeking a serious try. I couldn't bury myself away from that forever. The police investigation blamed Marco's behavior on drink and steroids. So far, I've managed to avoid blaming myself. When I returned to clear my stuff out of the apartment, I found one of the earworms amongst the rubble. I picked it up and rolled it between my fingers as I examined it, and then I squeezed hard. It swelled up, and just before it burst in a splat of dark purple crud, a mouth, lined with cuts, opened at one end and hissed. our final tale. We delve into a somewhat familiar area of entertainment, podcasting. Some of you may have heard certain horror podcasts, but I can guarantee you haven't heard this one. It's a paranormal urban exploration show run by one Lester Holland. And in this tale, shared with us by author Carson Winter, thanks to an unknown archivist, we're able to listen to the final ever episode of this mysterious show. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson and Jessica McAvoy. So come join us on the Black Pilgrimage as we, along with Holland, hike through the forest on the trail of missing people. All that and more in Zero Boundaries Podcast, Episode 182. Editor's note. The following was painstakingly transcribed from Lester Holland's digital recorder. We have done our best to preserve his voice for ease and accuracy of analysis. All right, so, I think this is rolling. Well, wait, fuck. Yeah, okay, we're on. I'm recording. Can I even say rolling anymore? Is that allowed? Does a digital recorder roll? Whatever your verb preference, this is episode 182 of Zero Boundaries, the premier paranormal urban exploration podcast. And this time, we're going live. Well, almost. I'm recording live on the scene, but you guys will hear it whenever it hits iTunes or whatever. Losers. Editor's note. Zero Boundaries is no longer available online for the greater listening public. Right now, speaking from my digital recording device, I'm parked at a campsite on the edge of Olympic National Park in Washington State. And I'm about to go on a week-long hike in an attempt to piece together a mystery that won't stop unraveling. And because I'm in the field, so to speak, I'm going to be recording all my thoughts. And what mysteries does this lush, green, beautiful forest hold? Hundreds of missing people, for one. But make no mistake, 
That's only where the story begins. To pass the time on the trail, I've brought all my research with me. Throughout the next week, I'll lay out everything I know about the Black Pilgrimage while, drumroll, I'm actually walking it. I take my first steps on the trail tomorrow morning. Until then, this is Zero Boundaries. I've been hiking for about, oh, let's say three hours now. I've just been kinda enjoying the scene, really. It's one of those things you have to see to appreciate. Sun is out, air smells crisp and clean. I don't think I'll mind roughing it in these parts. So, just to recap for all those who don't know how this works, I'm going to be recording this episode in the forest itself. I have a couple fully charged batteries for my recorder, and I'm assured I could record a hundred hours straight if I wished. If you remember the Detroit episode where we spent the night in the haunted factory, this is gonna be kinda like that. Except way more ambitious. I'll explore the mystery, kinda go through the facts in my downtime, and report anything I see or hear. It'll be fun, and hopefully spooky. To complete the experience, I also brought a camera, and when I get home, I'll post some stuff to the Zero Boundaries blog, just so you know, you can get the whole picture. Yeah, I know, I know. I'll be here all week. Literally. Double singer. Editor's note. Blog no longer exists. Unfortunately, to our knowledge, no pictures have been recovered yet. But anyways, let's get to why I'm here. The Black Pilgrimage. What paranormal investigator Kipler Roshi called an unacknowledged holocaust, the most prolific serial killing in the history of the human race? A deadly trail that some say is the Pacific Northwest's Bermuda Triangle, discovered in part by nonprofit Missing But Not Forgotten, a foundation intent on solving missing persons mysteries with the help of a large and active community user group. The site's flagship application, the missing map, was used as a tool to help keep track of high-risk areas and to highlight the possibility of a human trafficking ring operating in the United States. A couple users local to Washington noticed the high density of dots in and around the perimeter of the forest, and from there, the ball started to roll. Who were these people who all so suddenly vanished? Well, at first glance, they had no connection to each other at all. They were normal people who lived quiet lives both online and off, flew to the northwest, headed off towards the forest, and were never heard of again. One of the most interesting pieces of evidence in regards to a sort of anomaly is this blog post by Jeff Coons, a man who allegedly sat next to a woman named Marcy Pollock on a plane ride to Seattle. Coons found out the woman was missing a couple weeks after his flight and came forward to reveal his recollections in hopes that they could help the authorities. He writes, She was quiet, kinda tense, maybe a little sad. I tried to lighten the mood with her a couple of times and chatted a bit. I asked her if she lived in Seattle and she said, No, I'm just going home. I took that to mean she grew up there but moved away. The wording stuck with me, though. Editor's note. Holland misquotes Coons's blog post here. 
In the original post, Coons writes that she says, No, I'm coming home. There are no known records of Marcy Pollock having any connections to Seattle or the Northwest. The last places the missing are seen are often at gas stations, campsites, or sometimes on the trail itself. And to be true to the case, I've made all the obvious stops in the obvious places. Some listeners have suggested, in preparation for our Black Pilgrimage episode, that someone who works at one of these common sites is scoping potential victims. If this is true, I've left a strong enough trail for anyone to follow. They know where I'm going. The only thing I didn't tell them was my real name and what I was doing here. Editor's note. This was Holland's first misstep. The pseudonyms he left at various hotels, restaurants, and gas stations obfuscated his comings and goings. He chose intentionally bland names like Robert Brown or Jeff Williams, names found at other registries in the area, thus widening the search when it could have been more focused. According to my map, I've made it to my first real stopping point today. Time to set up camp. Tomorrow, I'll tell you all about the little mystery that's guiding my journey and how it connects to the Black Pilgrimage. Peace out. I'm eating breakfast now. I'm eating the good shit. Baked beans cooked over a campfire. Authentic smoked in flavor. The night was quiet. I heard a couple of animals, but nothing too Blair Witchy. Slept pretty decent, but I'm a city boy. And I reserve the right to be tore up from a day of hiking. Anyways, I said yesterday I was at my first real stopping point. Which means I should probably talk about the map. If I were to describe it to you, you'd think it rather unremarkable. The map itself, or my copy at least, is a print-off of a scan an old map of the National Park with heavy black vein-like lines hand-drawn over the illustrated topography. Each vein ends in the near center of the forest, reaching like a tendril from its edge to its darkest depths. These are the trails. They all lead to the same black dot, and they all have a number of disappearances attributed to their entry points. This is the McAllister map. This is what is leading me onward. For 15 years, the McAllister map has been passed around on the internet as a lesser-known piece of internet folklore. Some users of sites such as 4chan and Reddit recall seeing it posted occasionally, dating from around the early millennium onward. Much of its rather limited popularity came from its unnerving visual factor. Basically, if you look at it, and I'll be posting this to my blog along with any other pictures I come up with. You'll see that it looks pretty creepy. But initially, anyways, that was the problem with the McAllister map. It didn't have any real staying power. It didn't have a name or a purpose like Slenderman, therefore never experienced the same sort of growth. Back then, the names floating around were sillier and more decidedly horrific like Satan's Eye or Worm Waves. It wasn't even widely acknowledged as a map back then, not until a user from a forum dedicated to unsolved mysteries commented that the map was of Olympic National Park. 
From there, one map was connected to the other, and the fervor began. Internet researchers pinpointed the first sharing of the map back to 2001 in the golden age of online piracy. It was posted to an anonymous and now defunct image board at 9.36 p.m. October 12th. There were a couple of comments, all of them lowercase, misspelled, and not altogether too interesting. But someone who saw it there downloaded it, and then included it in a file titled creepy.exe. Now, it was not actually executable, but simply an image gallery. Most agree that the title was likely written by a kid who thought it sounded techie. The file contained a host of typical creepy images, one of which was the McAllister map. Creepy.exe became a starter kit of sorts for kids on the internet, and this is when the image started to spread, albeit modestly. But once the Black Pilgrimage became a specifically Northwest phenomenon, the map took on a new weight as users noticed similarities. The comparison took minutes to make, and pretty soon commenters were pointing out that both depicted Olympic National Park and, more disturbingly, the entry points on the McAllister map correlated with the largest congregation of dots on the missing map. People began to wonder how it came to be, what it was, and when it was made. Well, the first clue was the map itself, not what was drawn upon it, but the original untainted map. Users matched it to a roadmap published in 1952, stocked in gas stations and convenience stores across the United States. On the blotch of green that is Olympic National Park, the black lines were drawn, probably in marker, designating a number of trails that all led to the same spot in the shadow of Mount Olympus. The McAllister map is a black and white scan of that map, the scan's distortive quality highlighting its sinister undertones with the ragged, stark aesthetic of horror movies like The Ring, The Grudge, and earlier, Seven. This coincidence, along with the growing mystery surrounding the Black Pilgrimage, cemented the McAllister map as more than just a map, but something innately sinister. The plot thickened when a man named Buck Farr claimed to have the original download on an old computer saved on a whim from the original image board. Farr said, in a now lost but endlessly screenshotted MySpace post, Me and a friend, way back in the pimply ages of middle school, used to use the site as a discreet way to share pictures of, well, porn. It wasn't as widely used as 4chan, so it felt a little less skeevy, too. I mean, we were still looking at naked women, but it was pretty tame in comparison. Kid shit. Recently, my friend saw the picture of the map and sent it my way, knowing I was into spooky shit. He had no recollection of it at all, but when I saw it, it took me straight back to being 13 and staying up late and reading creepy threads. I remember seeing it, not thinking much of it, and then saving it. Back then, I saved everything that even remotely caught my eye. The map was weird and kind of cool to look at. When he told me that it was becoming a big deal, I had to dig out my old computer. Far did the mystery a huge service by finding the original download and uploading it, and an even bigger service by exposing its metadata, revealing the file to have been uploaded 
by a Lewis McAllister III. All it needed was a name, and the McAllister map became canonized into internet folklore. We're gonna switch gears before we get back to Lewis McAllister, but remember that name, because it's not the last time you'll hear it. On each trail, or veins as they've started to be called, are smaller dots. Internet commenters call them uh, blood clots. Charming, right? Well, I've been hiking for a while now, and I think I found my first blood clot. Should just be over the hill here. So, no one actually knows for sure what these represent, but as we get deeper into the tangential material surrounding the Black Pilgrimage, the McAllister map, and the damned abattoir, more theories will present themselves. The general consensus is that they're pit stops of some sort. Either way, we're about to find out for sure very soon. Editor's note. Holland mentions the damned abattoir, but never speaks about it at length, save for a few allusions. It is not yet clear whether Holland acquired a copy or is using what he has seen online as a reference point. Holy shit! I... Oh my god! This is amazing! I can't believe what I'm seeing here! This is... incredible! So, here, let me try to describe this. I'm, I'm looking at the vein I'm following, and this is the first of two blood clots before we reach the end of the map. I can't even... I'm seriously so excited right now! This is real headway. No one has seen this before and lived to tell the tale! Alright, let me take a deep breath. Fuck, fuck, fuck! It's awesome! So, I was walking up this hill. It was super rocky, but still, let me tell you. Beautiful. Gorgeous. Green on everything. Even the moss here is fluorescent. I get to the top, and the trail tells me to steer left down the side of the other hill, which leads to a small valley. Down in the center of the valley, which is maybe, well, let's say about 200 feet of flatland flanked by heavily wooded hills, there is a structure. Man-made, definitely. Stone, but overgrown with vines and moss. It looks like an arch, kind of stone ish you know? I'm not an expert on this stuff, so I'm gonna take a lot of pictures because I wanna know when this was built, but I'm gonna guess sometime in the last hundred years. This is amazing, and it's getting dark. I'm gonna camp here for the night and gather some more data to take it back with me. Alright, it's morning. I'm still alive. No devils whispering in my ears. Although I'm pretty sure someone did walk through my camp last night. But I'm thinking it was probably just another hiker. Freaked me out a little bit when it happened, but what are you going to do? I'm in the woods. People hike. Just for the record, I didn't see the hiker. But I did hear him. And I can see his footprints right now. I'm taking some more pictures for the blog. Just in case. Just to be clear, I'm not fearful for myself right now. 
I'm more concerned that I'm documenting the latest victim to fall into the Black Pilgrimage. So, hopefully, that's not what's happened here. Either way, time to break camp. On the trail again, saying goodbye to our first blood clot. Looks like my trail is taking me in a different direction than the footsteps of our fellow traveler. Am I a pussy for saying I'm relieved? Yes? Fair enough. Changing gears here. Another piece of the puzzle. More fodder from message boards of the days past. Remember when discussion boards were big? Before all discussion was centered in Facebook groups. It's a thing of wonder, really. I'm on the trail right now, so forgive my foot stomping in the background. This next thing. I actually knew about this before I ever got into this black pilgrimage stuff. Way before. The Zero Boundaries listener actually tagged me in a story, and I thought at the time it was a cute mystery. Small potatoes, but still intriguing. It was a video pulled from a local news broadcast out of Bismarck, North Dakota. A little fluff piece surrounding a 73-year-old blind woman who paints. We talk a little bit about her art, why she chose painting, her struggles with her disability, and her can-do optimism. Meanwhile, they cut to some folks who I assume are from the Bismarck art scene, and they all have some really nice things to say about her painting technique. Nice, right? It's a fun story that you could probably see your local news running, too. The paintings are no great mystery. They tend toward the abstract and are almost purely expressionistic. She is blind, after all. But they do have a very nice raw quality to them that makes them appealing. Well, there's one scene in the video where the interviewer is standing in Abby's studio and, and they're talking about her art. They go through a couple of her paintings and she, she talks a little about them. In the background of the studio, we see all these paintings hanging on the wall. And this is where whoever uploaded the video zooms in and digitally circles a single painting. You can barely see it, and the video itself was produced around 1996, so the quality isn't quite up to snuff in the first place, but you can see pretty clearly that this painting in the background is the only of the set that isn't abstract. It's a mountain surrounded by forest, and it's tucked into the corner of her display. Well, this definitely raised an eyebrow for me at the time, but I shrugged it off and moved on. I mean, there's the obvious answer here. Abigail's door wasn't always blind, and she painted the nature scene back when she had sight. Boom. Gaze closed. Except... That's not correct in the least. Abigail Zador was born blind due to Libra's congenital amaurosis, an inherited disease. She has never known sight. Editor's note. It is possible Abigail Zador possessed limited sight throughout or early in her life. Holland seems confused or is sensationalizing Zador's story. However... It is still a remarkable feat for her to have painted this piece. Either way, it is suggested that her sight is in parallel with the damned abattoir. 
With that in mind, new questions emerge. Did she actually paint this? Was it purchased? Would a blind woman purchase someone else's art? Does she personally enjoy art, or does she like the way it allows her to express herself? One of our users went online and did some research. Freshjack13 found a great number of her paintings on a big cartel site run by her surviving family. Abby died in 2004, and wanted her paintings to be sold cheaply to people who would have appreciated them. Well, why do you know? The mountain painting wasn't there. And for good reason, too. It was sold four years ago. You gotta give credit to Freshjack13, because he goes a lot deeper than your average researcher. He found the painting online, a high-resolution scan, and the title. But where did he find it? A deep web message board called The Abattoir. The painting. The red. Editor's note. Abattoir user Doug Jackson has claimed to be Fresh Jack 13 and has submitted screenshots of emails sent between himself and Holland as proof. But with a clear scan, we can see a lot more detail. In fact, as soon as we posted a mini-episode mystery of the scan, we knew we were onto something a lot bigger. Almost instantly, our Northwest readers chimed in. The painting was of Mount Olympus. The mountain I can see right now, looming. And, if I'm being totally honest, I'm fairly close to the painting's perspective. About a day's hike from the next blood clot. It's chilling to see it like this. Because the deeper you get into the Black Pilgrimage, the more things connect. Never exact, but they have a way of falling into place. The painting. Why is it called The Red? There's no red in it. It's just motel art, albeit more ominous. The reason is another of those puzzle pieces, one that never quite fits into place, but another question to inspire endless debate. But let's deal with the abattoir first. Hidden in the deep web, discovered by Freshjack13 from a lone link in an occult forum that's been dead for about a decade, is an old-school message board centered around a mystery. Well, that's not quite the right way to put it. Uh, it's populated by devotees of a mystery. Anyways, the... First big accident of the whole trip. Talking to myself, tripped. That about sums it up. If I'm correct, I'm still about two days from the end of the journey. The blood clot on the radar for tomorrow. I'm just torn up right now. I fell down into a, I don't know, a ravine? Is that right? I guess so. Hit a lot of trees on the way down. I might have twisted my ankle, which is the majority of the pain I'm feeling right now, but hopefully it's not actually sprained. I managed to get myself back to where I tripped and a little farther, but I'm still about a mile short of where I originally wanted to stop. 
It's still light out, and it will be for another three or four hours, but I'm gonna set up camp and try to rest my foot. Peace out. Editor's note. Sound file available in primary documents forum. Editor's note. From here on out, Holland starts to sound fatigued, possibly dazed from the encounter he had the previous night. This could also be a compounding of factors, including exposure to the elements and potential injuries. From the damned abattoir, they walk and they shamble through the woods like a flock of sheep. They walk all day and they walk all night, and I smell like bourbon and brains. I don't know what to think anymore. I was afraid to leave the tent this morning, you know? I didn't want to get out of my fucking tent. I'm taking pictures of the footprints, all that kind of stuff. I know I need to, but it's hard because right now I'm not sure. I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. But make no mistake, they were here. I can see the footprints, about ten of them. And they were all around the tent. And they were talking to me. But I don't know what they were saying. Would it be cowardly to just convince myself it was a dream and move on? I'm kicking myself for turning on my recorder at all. Yay, Zero Boundaries podcast. Premiere paranormal. Editor's note. Holland trails off and says nothing for 43 seconds. This is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. A lot harder. I'm going to eat something, and then I'm going to go to the next blood clot. God help me. I am a stupid man. I'm a little shaken up still. It's hard to describe how I'm feeling because, well, I've never had to feel anything like this before. I'm isolated. Like, really isolated. If I wanted to get back to civilization, I'd probably have to hike a good 50 miles. I mean, it all fits together, right? That's what makes a good mystery. Is that at the end you you can see the pieces fall into place? Well, right now, I'm wondering, you know. What if this isn't a good mystery? What if this is a bad mystery? I'm getting tired. I've only been hiking for an hour and I'm tired. I'll try to push through. God, where were we? Yeah. The abattoir is a forum on the deep web. A scary term for the internet that isn't part of the search engine databases. Imagine all the websites you go to being on uh, a map. Wait. Sure, a a map. Not the map, but a map. Like uh, a road map. Uh, It's all documented. You can trace the lines, outline it with a marker if you want, make stops along the way. But 
Now, imagine some cities haven't been put on the map yet. And to get there, you just need to know how to get there. Well, that's the deep web. That's the abattoir. It's not cataloged and you won't find it on any maps, but it's there. And this is where we start to go deep. Maybe too deep, if you ask me. The abattoir is a dedicated forum for everything related to the Black Pilgrimage. If we'd found it a long time ago, we'd have saved a lot of legwork. But the truth of the matter is that it has to be already known about. It's, it's like the chicken and the egg. How do you find a way to know something you're already supposed to know? God, I feel like I'm gonna be sick. You know, all those women who write to serial killers, the ones who fall in love with them? The abattoir is a lot like that. The masthead is made up of the faces of the missing. Now you think, like, maybe it's like, uh, for remembrance. They're trying to help the families or something. But look at the name. The Abattoir. Do you know what an abattoir is? Do you? It's a slaughterhouse, man. Editor's note. It is possible that Holland is congested here, as the tone of his voice changes. Some users claim to hear sniffling, too, after the masthead, and later, during eloquent user speculation. Users are split on whether the congestion is emotional or viral. This is the slaughterhouse. The forest. A giant meat grinder. They have threads upon threads with thousands of pages of eloquent user speculation. We were talking about the red, right? Well, they know all about it. They've deconstructed the technique, have a rough timeline of when it was painted, and they know who bought it. Remember McAllister, the kid who uploaded the map, the one who gave it its fucking namesake? Well, guess who bought the red? Go ahead. Fucking guess. Another McAllister. The second this time. His father. It just keeps going deeper. You can ask yourself why. You can ask yourself why so many times. But it never comes together. Everyone wonders what they're doing now. Who they are. You don't need the abattoir to figure that out. You don't. At the age of 15, Lewis was found guilty for the murder of a 12-year-old girl. Before that, he was known as a quiet kid with a good family. That's right. Ask anyone who knows them. The McAllisters are a good family. But then again, most of those people aren't on the abattoir, right? Editor's note. Most users remain anonymous. Lewis was quiet. His mom and dad were around a lot. They were decently upper middle class. But Lewis would sometimes act out in school. Some people thought he had undiagnosed ADHD. Sometimes he'd act goofy to get attention. And then, one night, 
He lured a younger girl out of her house and killed her in the forested area of a nearby park. Details are vague, of course, but someone in the police department came up with the fact that he pulled out her eyes, cut off one of her fingers, then buried them nearby. Editor's note. Another parallel from the damned abattoir. I buried pieces of her along the trail in hopes that her flesh would act as seedlings and grow. Louis McAllister III is in prison for life. His family has spoken out against his actions, have condemned them vehemently, and have offered nothing but support to the family of the girl. Still, still, there isn't a week that McAllister too misses a visit with his son. I'm looking at the map now, and I'm getting close. Really close. Chillingly close. I'm in spitting distance of the perspective of the red. It's like I'm seeing the painting right now. It's unreal. The ground is quicksand, I guess. I'm at a loss for words. I'm looking up, right now, at Mount Olympus. I feel sick. I feel tired. I feel out of my element. And right this second, I am seeing the red in a way no high-def scan can ever represent. But the ground, it's like a marsh. I'm at the blood clot, the exact same perspective Abby Zador painted. Jesus fucking Christ, the exact same, it's... I don't know what to say. There's no structure, nothing man-made, just this marsh and the view. I can't tell if I'm underwhelmed or terrified. I don't know what I can say about any of this anymore. All I can think about is the fact that I'm starting to warm up to the idea that I might not make it out of here. Is that dramatic? Too dramatic to say? Maybe. Maybe. I might be stuck here. I might be the... Editor's note. Holland exhales slowly, theatrically even. Some users believe Holland had already prepared this line before he entered the forest and is now using it, regardless of his dire situation. I might be the latest Black Pilgrim. I don't even know what to think about that. I can see it now. My face, my smiling face will appear in newspapers. They'll take quotes from my friends. They'll ask my family what I was like growing up. All this will be published. Then it will be forgotten. And the only place I'll survive is on the abattoir. They might even put me on the masthead. They'll plot my course and imagine my terror at what I might have seen. What might have happened to me. You know, on the abattoir they have a forum called the Goodbye. You know what they post there? Well, it's right there. Right there in the name. It's just a natural extension of the hobby. Once you start researching the Black Pilgrimage, eventually you'll want to take the trip yourself. Once you read the literature, 
Once you see all the facts, the mysteries become too great. And when it's time, when you finish your tattered copy of the damned abattoir, when you've discussed the disappearances until you've memorized all the canonical victims, when you've seen the red, when you've read about the McAllister murder, when you start changing your desktop backgrounds to pictures of the forest, when nothing else interests you, you say goodbye and venture onwards as a fellow pilgrim. The marsh, I think it's moving. Editor's note. The dull roar in the background makes the audio difficult to hear, but as user Bedlam2 suggested, it is clear that Holland is reciting the last lines of the damned abattoir, where the narrator, in free verse, gives himself over to an unnatural living structure, most often referred to as the tower. Bricks, mortared, sealed and stuck with dice and pinups. We build, we build forever. End of transcription. Editor's note. Tape was found 24 miles in, following the McAllister map's trajectory, starting from vein 4 with some minor deviations. The above was transcribed for ease of analysis. Lester Holland was never found by authorities, but this recording was found and sent in by user the last underscore 45. Please do your due diligence and keep these materials off the greater web. All materials are presented to you by The Abattoir. The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.